Pastor George here. I wanted to take a second and thank you for checking out our online messages. Our prayer is that this resource will challenge you, encourage you, and empower you as you uh, dig deeper in your relationship with Christ. But in no way will it replace God's plan for your active involvement in a local church. I do want to take a second and ask you to uh, prayerfully consider as you participate and listen to this resource, partnering with Revive as we uh, pursue our mission of seeing people live their fullest life in Christ. You can do this by going online to revivechurchga.com backslash give and making a one-time donation or setting up a recurring gift. It's through the generosity of others that we're able to provide um, a resource like this one. With that being said, uh, I do want to thank you again, and here is today's message. Next week, we are going to start a new series called Christian Atheists. Um, it's based off of a book, but it's an interesting concept if you think about Christian Atheists. First, you're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. But I think especially in the South, and a lot of you probably know this with the people you work with or, or whatever like that, that there's this time when we enter into the holiday season, and yes, we're in November. Yes, Halloween is past. And yes, I am listening to Christmas music. Don't judge me, okay? <laughs> I'm one of those people. But as we enter into this season, you'll realize that I think we all realize that people, first off, are open, a lot more open, let's say, to Christian conversations, talking about God. They realize that, you know, yeah, Thanksgiving is a, is a time to be thankful. Yeah, Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and there's this openness to it. But you also find a tendency that, everyone still kind of talks about being a Christian and they'll go to church on Christmas and the, there's all these traditions around this and, and there's a sense of, of God being this God of happy times, but not necessarily the unhappy or the difficult times. And God is there for, for that doesn't challenge me in this area. As long as there's no challenge, I'm a Christian. But whenever there's pushback, maybe, maybe that part's not true. Or maybe, and there's, there's tendencies where there'll be a Christian in one area but not believing God in another area. And so it's really a series to challenge us to basically let God be the ruler of our life in every area. And it's really intriguing, so I really encourage you to be here for, for uh, this series. I'm excited about where it's going. But for today, for our last week, and uh, this must be greater than that, our greater than series, uh, first I want to ask for some grace because I am a little under the weather, so uh, you'll have to maybe listen up a little bit harder, but I think we have a, I think the Lord has a good message for us. Um, our passage today is going to be in Jeremiah 31, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Uh, Jeremiah 31, I'm going to start with verse 31 and read to verse 34, and it says this, Behold... The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the covenant he's talking about. It says, I will put my law within them. I will write on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this is, this is a powerful moment in the book of Jeremiah, who's a prophet of God, right? He's, he's somebody who's bringing God's word to the people. And he's saying, look, you know all the stories of the Old Testament. You've read these things. You've, you've been told these stories, and you see the promises that God has made all throughout history. But here in this moment, God is giving them this dynamic promise, this promise that in the future, that I'm going to pursue you in a way that I'm going to be so committed to you that I'm going to remember your sins no more, that you can't run from me, that you can't, you can't get far enough. There's this sense of pointing towards Jesus and the promise that Jesus is. And even though you may fall short, even though the, you may not hold up your end of the bargain, because I know that's what's happened. It's, I've made these promises and my people haven't kept them. Even though I was their husband, it's literally this marriage language. Like, even though I was their God and they were my people, they turned their back on me. But this new covenant, this new promise is that even though they may do it again, I am committed to them. And there's this sense of commitment over preference. So the message for today is that we must have, that the commitment in our life must be greater than preferences. And this, if you're like me, there's, a, there's this kind of this adverse reaction, this hesitancy towards commitment. I'm, I'm full-blooded millennial, right? Like I fall into the category. And there's actually stats that we'll talk about a little later, but, but the, the younger you are, typically the less committed to things you are. This is kind of the culture that we've gotten into. And I am terrified of commitment, right? Like I went through this journey when I was in college where tat- before this time tattoos were bad, right? Like tattoos was like one of the biggest sins. If you got tattoo, you were, you were worshiping the devil, da, 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 da. It was beaded into me when I was a little kid, went to the, a very legalistic church. And, but I got this place where like I met Christians who had tattoos and I was like, well, hold up. That doesn't really, you know, make sense with what I knew beforehand. So I kind of began to, to look into it. And some of them had tattoos before they were Christians. So I guess that's okay. Like if you're not a Christian to get a tattoo, then become a Christian. So you just have to have the timing right. And I like dug a little bit deeper and realized that really some of these standpoints comes from uh, some out of context verses in the Old Testament and that there's nothing really wrong with the tattoo. And and so I got to this place. I was like, what? okay, I agree with this and I really want a tattoo. And so I came up with some ideas and I got some more ideas and I kind of like, man, I really want a tattoo. And you'll notice as I stand here before you that I don't have any tattoos because tattoos are permanent (laughs) and that is scary, right? I have one that like, I'm trying to talk myself into getting for like my 30th birthday, which is in March. So like that's soon and kind of makes my palms sweat a little bit, but like, I really have this awesome idea that I like and I want to, I want to get that tattoo, but man, it is it is forever. (laughs) And forever is a long time, right? It's permanent. And there's this sense of committing to it that like, I've never got there. Like I've had ideas in the past and I'm like, man, I'm going to get this tattoo. And then like, you know, six months later, I'm like, you know what? I don't like that idea anymore. But, but once you've got the tattoo, there's no turning back. I've actually had nightmares, right? I had a nightmare one time that I got this huge Georgia Tech tattoo on my arm, right? Which I would never do, right? I would never do that. But I had this huge Georgia Tech tattoo, and I woke up one day, and I didn't remember getting it. So I don't know how that would happen, but I think you know. Right? I don't remember getting it, right? And I woke up with this tattoo, and I hated it. And it literally made, I woke up sweating because I was stuck with something I hated, 
right? Commitment is scary. I can remember being a sophomore in college and uh, dating this girl named Lauren. And this girl named Lauren started talking about engagement. And I remember in the library getting actually mad. I'm like, what? this is way too soon. She got her feelings hurt. She started crying. It was, it was a big mess. And looking back on it, it was very clear. Like we were, had a good relationship. I loved her and, and marriage was probably going to happen. It did happen looking back, right? But at that moment, the thought of like committing to somebody forever was terrifying. You have all kinds of thoughts like, what if, what if, I mean, this is, I'm just being real, like, what if I commit to Lauren and then somebody better comes along, right? And I know Lauren had that thought, listen, I'm really good looking and I'm very funny, but I know that there's better out there, right? And so what if better comes along and this person that's committed to me that I've given my heart to, that I've given my life to, that I want to marry, I'm married to, but what if somebody better comes along and she leaves me? Like that's terrifying, right? So commitment is this, it's when we hear commitment over preference, like a lot of times, I don't care if you're a millennial or not, commitment is scary. There's, we all have issues of, of a fear of being abandoned, a fear of, of a broken covenant. We don't use the, the word of covenant, but, but that's what a marriage is. That's what we're, t- we're reading about in Jeremiah, God making a covenant. That's a commitment. It's a promise. And we all have this fear of that being broken. I mean, stat after stat after stat, this is nothing new, but 50% of marriages end in divorce. 50%. That's every one of every two people ends in a divorce. That's a large number. It proves that spouses leave, that that's a warranted fear. You can give your heart to somebody. You can give your love to somebody, and they could just stomp on it, right? Dads leave. Moms leave. A job doesn't come through. A friend can stab you in the back. An organization that you're supposed to, that is supposed to support you shows you that they couldn't care less about you. There's scandals in politics. There's scandals in church. And, and we look all around us and we see that people are abandoned and people are hurt all the time. You've experienced it. I have no doubt that you've seen a broken covenant, a broken brokenness firsthand in your life. And it's not just like a man, now I don't have what I used to, but it is painful. It grieves us. So we find ourselves asking questions like, if my political or legal or religious organization can't hold up their oaths to to the public that they've made, then why does it make sense for me to commit to them? Why would I commit to voting? Why would I commit to paying my taxes? Or I don't know, why would I commit to going to church regularly? Because these things haven't held up their end, so why would I commit to them? Why would I commit to authority? Why would I commit to God? Or questions like, what if I limit myself and then become miserable? Marry somebody and then I don't even like them. What if I commit to another person that doesn't commit to me? What if they never come through for me? What if, they, what if when I need them most, they leave me? What if I get taken advantage of? Commitment is scary. And these questions have warrant. They're real questions that I think we should ask and we do ask. But if we live only out of preference, and never make commitments, we will miss out on some of the most important things in our lives. And I want to prove that to you because we live in a culture, we live in a culture where commitment 
seems to fade further and further away. And you can see it as a, over time. If you look at history, like you have this, in America specifically, you have the Industrial Revolution, right? So before the Industrial Revolution, before factories and people began to going to work, basically it was a, an agricultural area that people were, what one author calls, they called them thick communities, right? And then these thick communities, you needed the other people to survive. You needed the blacksmith. You needed the dairy farmer. You needed the pharmacist. You needed all of these people. And so you lived close enough to travel. You knew what was going on in their lives. If they were in need, you supported them. If you were in need, they supported you. It was like, it was intimate and you knew everybody. It would often be called clans over cities, right? And so there's a sense of, of a thick community where everybody knows everybody. But then these factories started popping up and you no longer had to be a blacksmith just like your grandpa. You could go to work in the factory and make money and and go out and purchase things. And so you kind of lost this thick community and the author goes on to call these thin communities because we still crave relationship and commitment is good, but we don't go quite as deep. Instead of getting to know everybody personally in the whole area, now it's like the union and you get to know the people in the union with you or, or clubs or some kind of league. And you get to a place where, where you know less people and there's still an expectation. So, you know, you ask how your family's doing and there's conversations and, and you know a little bit of personal level, but it's not quite as deep as the thick communities. But, you know, we even live in a time that's even further than the, the post-revolution period, the industrial revolution period. Because we live in a time and an age in a digital world where everything is mobile. People are no longer having to even go to work. They work from home. People can have a job working for a company in America and live in Costa Rica because everything is online. There's no longer a need to even be a part of these thin communities. And so they've been replaced with this author goes on to call peg communities. So like a sporting event. I go to a Braves game, and we're a community of Braves fans. We're all there together. We're all wearing the the Braves gear. We're all cheering. We're all on the same page. So we're a community. But I could go to a Braves game and sit in the same seat for every game, and there will be somebody new every night. You don't even know their name. You don't know their family. You don't know uh, if they have any pets or any kids. You don't know what they're going through. And so these communities become smaller and smaller and smaller and less and less intimate. And we kind of prefer it that way because then we can have a life like we like. We can have things that are more to our preference than a commitment. And we get to a place where we have a relationship that is really only with family. And people tend to go deep and intimate with with people that, with a, uh, a community that is three to eight people at most. Three to eight people at most. And it never really goes really deep. We're, we're more disconnected than we ever were. You no longer have to be a blacksmith. You can be whatever you want to be and go online instead of going down the street and go to Amazon and have it show up on your front porch and literally never have a conversation with anybody. And, it, and, and this is, as I say these things, like we look at the past and the past seems to be based on commitment and the current tends to be based on preference. And we, have, we, we seem to have moved from we to me, from producers to consumers, And we get to a place where we don't really even have to love people that we don't like. We don't have to love people that we don't agree with. We don't have to love people that don't look like us because we can hide in a corner literally and just hang out with the people that are like us. And we get these little peg communities that are just people that's superficial because they're just like us. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that, that where we are is bad. 
Because we are, we, as we move forward, there's progress that happens that is very good. I mean, thank God we live in a society now where everybody has a right to vote. Where to be a woman, you don't just have to stay at home and cook and clean. That you can go out and you can have a job. Where we no longer live with segregation. And there's lots of things that, that we've made advances in that are good. But as we move forward and life becomes more and more mobile, we must fight against a preference-based relationship and fight for commitment. Fight for what, we, for, for what needs to happen. Fight for that community. You can see it in social media. As you scroll through your newsfeed and you like something, Facebook remembers. <laughs> and they have this algorithm. And then they'll start showing you things that are similar to that. And before you know it, and just to, to, call, to talk about politics, because that's the easy thing to talk about, Facebook labels you as a Republican, or they label you as a Democrat. And as you scroll through, they only show you the Democratic posts, and they don't show you anything Republican. And they don't care whether it's real or not. They're just going to show you what you like. And we live in a society where we only want to see, and we only want to experience what we like. And this is, it ends up hurting us. It ends up hurting us. And and I want to kind of unpack this for just a second, what it looks like to live in a a preference-based community. You have instability. People come and go as their intentions come and go. And this is crazy because if you're honest with yourself, you know that your interests change over time. I have this huge collection of bald eagle figurines. I don't know why. When I was a little kid, I decided I loved bald eagles, right? I did projects on them. I had books on them, and I wanted all kinds of bald eagle stuff. Don't judge me, okay? I just liked it. And my my grandfather would give me bald eagle stuff every year for Christmas. And And as time goes on, I don't care about those things at all anymore, right? But I've got this huge thing, porcelain eagles you can't even play with because they'll break, right? And I don't know why, but I used to love bald eagles, But now I could care less. My favorite animal is a penguin. Who cares about bald eagles, right? So there's, our interests change. <laughs> I, think about, I think about even the, like relationships with people I had in college. People in my freshman year who were best friends, and by my junior year, I didn't even talk to anymore. Not because of, of anger, not because of things went wrong, but because our interests took us in different directions. So as we go through life, our interests change. And when our interests change, we tend to leave communities because our preference isn't for that. You see this a lot in sports fans. They're diehard sports fans for their team when their team is doing good, but when their team isn't doing good, they kind of stop paying any attention. I see this in my life when it comes to sports because I used to be a diehard Atlanta, uh, Atlanta United fan, right? Like watched every single game. This year I watched one game and it was the the most recent one that they lost and the season was over, right? I still am an Atlanta United fan, but it's like when the Braves are doing good, I'm going to care more about them than I do Atlanta United. And so as we, as we go through life, our interests change. And the problem with this is it creates instability. Because if we're just in a community based on our interests, then how do we know that that community is always going to be there? It's not. And we, we get to a place where I can't trust these people because if their interests change, they're going to leave me. And we get to a time where we have such instability that we feel like we can't trust anybody. And this leads to loneliness. I was talking earlier that ages 16 to 24 feel the, uh, more lonely more often and more intensely than any other age group. 16 to 24-year-olds are lonelier than ever. Studies show that the older you are, the less likely you are to feel lonely. Not that you never feel lonely, but we live in an age where loneliness has become an epidemic. 
because we get all of our social, all of our social needs, we feel like we, they get met instantly in a social media by looking at our screen and not with the person. When we look at uh, a commitment-based society, you see stability instead of instability. You can make a plan and make decisions based on promises that have been given to you. I, I think about this in the, the idea of a marriage, right? Marriage, what is one of the most important things in marriage? Trust, which comes from communication, right? Like trust and communication are vital inside of marriage. And that happens when you can trust and communicate that you know that you can have a conversation with that person. Like if Lauren and I are having a relationship and and, and I know that like, hey, I've done something that maybe I was supposed to wash the dishes and I didn't and and it makes her mad, but she can't can't confront me because she's afraid I'm going to leave. There's no stability there. But if she knows that when I made my vows, I meant for better or for worse, that even, even if, if she's mad at me, if I was supposed to do something or whatever, and she comes to have a conversation with me because she can trust that she can have that conversation because I'm not going to run away. But the problem, we live in a time where covenants like a marriage are still futile. They're still short term. They can end in just a moment. And so, so people can't communicate because they're afraid their spouse is going to leave them but we can have stability and we can have intimacy and we can no longer have to have, be plagued with loneliness because we know that that person is not just gonna leave because their interests change. We know that they're not just gonna leave because of a, a hard conversation. This can save a marriage. This can save relationships. So we know that we're committed to other people and other people are committed to us. We have to be at a place where we're fighting for commitment over preference. It brings freedom, which sounds backwards, right? Like, like preference seems like freedom because I can go and do whatever I want whenever I want to do it. But what happens is that ends up limiting us because we can't make commitments to anybody. We begin to be governed by faith. That's the way it's going to have to be instead of by commitment. When we make a, a commitment to somebody, we, we make a promise and we cl- make a claim on freedom that we're going to be married no matter what, that I can have the freedom to have a hard conversation with my spouse because I know that they're going to fight for me. I know that we're going to be there for each other. And it creates identity. You think about the fact that we don't have it. If we're not committed to anything, we don't really know who we are because our identity changes with the wind. But we can have an intimate identity and knowing who we are despite what goes on despite our preferences. I'm a husband, and though interests change, and though uh, we may move cities, though I I might be a a fan of this today and a fan of that tomorrow, I know that I'm still Lauren's husband. We can know who we are because we've made commitments. If we never commit, we never experience the joy of long-term intimacy, the stability of a, a mutual committed relationship. Without commitment, no one will be able to care for you when you're sick because they won't even know you're sick. If we don't commit, we'll never know the joy of truly knowing that it's better to give than to receive, than serve to be served. We won't have that freedom. Alfred Tennyson says it, it's better to have love and loss than to never have loved at all. I'm sure you've heard that. C.S. Lewis says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure to keep it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all the entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin or in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, in that safe, 
dark, motionless, airless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. There's this sense that we can absolutely put up walls and isolate ourselves, but that will create loneliness and instability. And we have to choose commitment over preference. But why commit to God? Why commit to the church? Why, why commit to the unlovable? And here's why I want to kind of wrap it up is God has a, the power. He could run the world however he wanted. He could run it on preference. He, boom, there are unicorns if that's what God wanted. Boom, all cats are gone, right? Boom, Atlanta sports teams are finally good in the playoffs, right? Like God can make these things happen with preference at any point, at any moment. Boom, it's always fall weather, right? He can run the world on preference, but he doesn't. He chooses to run the world based on commitment. He has chosen to make and keep promises, even when those committed to him have chosen to break their commitments, to abandon him and have fallen short. Everything that we're fearful of, everything that we're fearful that we're gonna experience when we commit to somebody, God has experienced, yet he is faithful. He makes a, you can look at all throughout the scripture and we see this, this pattern of promise a covenant, and then he fulfills it. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve and the, the fall of man. You see that, that God is talking to Adam and Eve, and even though they've sinned, he gives Eve a promise that your son will crush the head of the serpent. Even in that moment, at the very beginning of creation, when man has turned their back on God, he gives the promise of victory. A promise to Noah that they'll never flood the whole earth again. A promise to Abraham that through all him, all nations will be, will be blessed. We see, I've talked about that before where God, there's this, this custom of kings to, to have all these animals and they split them in half and they walk through and it's like a promise that says, hey, if I don't keep up my end, may my life end up like these animals. And so God is with Abraham and this happens. They start the ceremony and then he causes Abraham to fall asleep. And Abraham realizes that God goes through that, those animals by himself saying, hey, I'm making a covenant. I'm making a promise with you. And if you don't keep up your end, if I don't keep up my end, either way, this is what's gonna happen to me. It's a picture of Jesus' body being torn for us. You, get, you move on to Israel and then receiving the promise of the promised land. And then you see David with the promise that, that his descendant will rule as Messiah. What we just read in Jeremiah, this promise to make a new house, a new covenant, it's not conditional, and this is what the picture of Jesus, this is what's so powerful about this passage. You can go to Hebrews 10 and look at verse 16. And, and in Hebrews 10, it, it shows this picture of the new covenant of Jesus dying on the cross, that that's us. That when we surrender our life to Jesus, that when we surrender our life to him, we realize that we are entering into that commitment, that God has committed to you. It's not based on your actions. It's not based on, not based on who you are or what your hobbies are, what your interests are. It's based on the fact that he loves you and he's committed to you no matter what. But are we committed to him? This tests our idea of the church. Church should not be one of those peg communities. The church has to be a, a thick community. We've entered, in, entered into this covenant with God and with others. God doesn't just, doesn't just say it's, it's, it's not just you as an I. He sees us as a we. The people of God, the body of Christ, the family of God, God's kingdom, all of that terminology in the Bible is corporate language. It's not just about me and Jesus, but it's about us following Jesus. We have to understand that commitment must be greater than preference. So what does that look like? 
and this is quick, I promise I'm coming to an end, but with God, do you live for favor or do you live out of favor? Because preference is for favor. If I do this, then God will bless me. But commitment is out of favor. God loves me. He has forgiven me. I am secure. I am always walking in him. And because of his love, I live this way. With the church, it's, it's, are you living out of your wants? The worship style should be like this. The preaching should be entertaining. The coffee should be good. The marketing is good. It's all about consuming. Or am I going where I feel called? Am I going to serve? Do I value diversity? That's what a committed church looks like. Or with other people, with other people, where, where, where it talks about those that are unloved, those that are hard to love. Are we self-focused? Do we only hang out with people who have shared interests? Do we leave after there's a conflict? Is our relationships transient? Are they unstable? Does love fade over time? Or is it committed? Well, we're others focused. We choose trust over skepticism. We press through hard times into unity. We value stability and love grows over time. Acts 2.42, if you go and you read, this is kind of the beginning of the church in Acts. It's a powerful moment where it says that they were fully devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were fully devoted to each other. They were committed. No matter what the preferences was, even if someone was in need, but you know, I really like this couch. If someone's in need, I'll sell this couch so that they can have the money. There's this sense of being committed to one another, loving them no matter what. And the really cool part about all of this is that as we choose commitment over presence, we see the presence and the power of Jesus multiplies. And we see lives change. We see people come to the Lord. We see people's lives and circumstances transformed because of God. And as that happens, as we choose commitment, our preferences begin to change. When we hold commitment over preference, our preferences, it's almost like they catch up. And a really cool example, a lot of you guys were here when we were, went through the, the Love Languages book as a small group, right? And uh, Lauren and I are almost extreme opposites. So her number one was quality time. Mine was acts of service. My last one was quality time, and hers was acts of service, right? In, this, in the middle, we were kind of the same, but our first two and last two were complete opposites to each other. And I was, we were talking on the way somewhere, and I was like, I really feel like my, my love language has kind of changed, especially since having Abby Lee, because it's like this sense of like, one of the things I want most is just like an evening at home with my family, like this quality time. And so re, I retook the test and acts of service is still number one, but my number two was quality time because I knew that that was, that was Lauren's love language. And if you go through the book, we went through this as a group, you, you commit to speak in your spouse's love language. Even if you don't do it well, you, you study, you look up ideas, you talk to somebody else, you talk to your spouse and you figure out how you speak their language best and you commit to it. Even if they're not speaking yours, you commit to them. It's not based on who they are. It's not based on what they're doing. You take the first step. And through this process, learning to speak quality time, I realized how much I enjoy it. And my preference began to change because I was committed to it. And now we both speak quality time really well. It's some of the greatest times in our marriages when we're like hanging around as a family or we watch a movie or we go out to eat. In those moments where we're spending time together, we're making it quality because I chose commitment over preference. And it's amazing how God will transform your heart and transform your preferences. If we're gonna be a church that sees the world transformed, we have to understand that we have to commit, even when we don't feel like it. We have to choose commitment 
over preference. Commitment must be greater than preference. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we come up against uh, difficulties this week and going forward, as we come up against times where we want to, to not commit, we want to give in, take the easy path, take the path that, that seems to make us the happiest at the moment. I pray that we will realize that that is just living out of preference and not out of commitment, that we would commit to you, we would commit to your church, we would commit to the people around us, that we would choose love first. Lord, I pray for, for diversity. I pray that we value others that don't look like us, don't sound like us, don't have the same hobbies as us, don't have the same interest as us, that we'll have conversations, we'll listen to their point of view, or that we will love people and commit to people, that we would choose commitment over preference. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.